Now with that, let's uh, take a second here and let's go to the Lord in prayer and get ready for our study this morning. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we rejoice in your goodness today and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would open it to us and you would send your spirit to work among us and that you would change us through it. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right, folks, so we are in Hebrews again, and we're looking at Hebrews 12 today. Uh, The verses that I'm hoping to get through are Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 17. And so we're going to try to hit those today. Just by way of example, remember, we are, sorry, not example, by way of reminder, we are in uh, the sixth section of the book of Hebrews, which is dealing with the practical implications of Christ's superiority. So we've covered the doctrine of Christ's superiority in a number of different ways and shades up to this point. And this morning, we're continuing to look at how the author of Hebrews is applying these truths to the readers. And one of the major ways that he applies the truth to the readers is by describing and discussing the doctrine of faith. And we saw the doctrine of faith in a great amount in Hebrews 11, where we saw sort of Uh, the author tracing faith and its importance throughout the whole of the Old Testament and seeing how central faith was to the life of God's people throughout that time. And so then at the beginning of chapter 12, what we were going through last week, was we were seeing how the doctrine of faith connects to Jesus' person and work. Because when we normally think about faith, we're thinking about uh, faith as it relates to Jesus as the object of our faith. That is, we believe in Jesus, right? He's the object that we're putting our faith in. But the author of Hebrews takes it another step because he doesn't just see Jesus as the object of our faith, but he sees Christ as, as he put it in verse 2 of chapter 12, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so Jesus as the founder means that he's the one who is essentially giving birth to spiritual children. We saw how that word was used in the Old Testament last week. It's the word used for the heads of the tribes of Israel, the ones from whom all the rest of the children come. And so Jesus as the founder of our faith is the one who gives birth to us again or gives birth to us from above. However you want to take that in John 3, because literally in the Greek in John 3, as Robert pointed out to me last week, it says to be born from above. So that's the kind of thing that Jesus is. Right? He's the, he is the person who, who creates, who founds, who gives faith in us through his spirit. Okay? So he's the founder. And then he's also the perfecter of our faith. He doesn't just found it. He doesn't just give it and then hope that we hang on to it. Just kind of waits to see what we do. And he doesn't just give us a little bit of grace to hang on to it if we want to. But no, he's the perfecter. He's the one who brings our faith to a sure conclusion. And so that's the the gist of what we were talking about last week, how faith relates to the person of Christ. And so this morning, as we get into verse 3 and following here, down through verse 17, our author is going to continue this line of thought as he's taking these doctrines and he's applying them to his readers. And today he's going to talk to us quite a bit about God's Discipline, and how we, by faith, should respond to the discipline of God. 
And so let's look at how he deals with that here. I'm going to read the passage, Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 17. So here's what he says. Consider him, now that is Christ. So consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. And strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. As I said a minute ago, the point of this passage is to talk to us about the discipline of God. And there are a couple of ways here that our author wants to do that. The first thing he does is he tells us a bit about the discipline of God itself. And he's going to do that by quoting the Old Testament. He's going to do that by telling us something about Jesus and about his death and and how we should think about that. And then after he talks to us about the discipline of God, then he goes into a period of, of sort of rattling off exhortations. Essentially, what he does is he gives us a whole bunch of applications after talking about God's discipline. So that makes my job a whole lot easier because he just gives me all the applications right there. And so we can really see how this applies because the Holy Spirit is giving us all of those pieces together for us. So let's look at this for a second. Let's look at the discipline of God. Now, in verse 3, the author wants to tell us something about Christ and how believers by faith should be thinking about the death and the life and work of Christ. And here's what he says. Verse 3, consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your 
blood. So notice what our author's talking about here. He is saying that as believers, when we look to the death of Christ, when we look to the sufferings of Christ as believers, we should be encouraged by the example that Christ set for us because he shed his blood for us. Therefore, we should be willing to do the same. So in other words, the author is setting forth here the fact that Christ is a moral example for believers. Now, we, ought, we need to sort of be careful about how we understand that, right? Because when Jesus came, when he died for us on the cross, when he suffered for us, lived the perfect life that we could not, Jesus was doing a whole lot more than simply being a moral example for us to follow. Because, you know, there have been a lot of people in church history who have tried to say that Christ's death as a moral example for us to follow is all that Christ's death was. The only thing that Jesus wanted to accomplish when he came to earth was he was going to show us the kind of thing that God wants us to do. And if we do the thing that Jesus did, then we can be saved. Right? That's not what the atonement's about. And we know that. Right? There have been a lot of variant views of the atonement throughout the generations of Christianity. Some people thought that you know, the, the purpose of Christ's atonement was to ransom us from the devil. We were in bondage to the devil, and then Jesus comes and he frees us from the devil. The devil was our main enemy. And, you know, there's some truth to that. We are freed from the devil as, uh, through Christ's death. But the devil is not our chief problem. Our chief problem is our own sin before a holy God. And so that view kind of gets a little bit of the truth, but not all the way there. Other people thought, well, maybe, you know, the, the atonement's purpose is to show us what God could do to us if he wanted to do it. It's called the governmental theory of the atonement. It's just putting God's governance as the supreme governor of the world on display. That, you know, he punished Christ. This is what God could do to you, but you just need to be a better person. And if you're a better person, then God won't do this to you. Uh, some people thought that's what the atonement was about. Other people thought it was just simply to show God's love. Show us, you know, how much God loves us. He was willing to send his son for us. And now there's some truth in all of those different views, but the problem is they're missing the major element. Now, Jesus' death is not simply an example for us. It's not just an example of the love of God. It's not just an example of God being governor of the universe. It is all of those things, but fundamentally it's about atoning for our sin before a holy God. Okay, So let's get that straight. That's what the atonement fundamentally is. But we have to be careful that we don't throw... Babies out with the bathwater. Right? We have to be careful that we don't take something that's, that's sort of true and make it the big thing. But we also need to be careful that we don't forget the other shades of what the atonement means for us. Yes, it's about forgiving our sins. Absolutely. But the biblical authors very often talk about Christ's death as an example for us about the kind of lives that we should live. Not that as Christians we need to go out and die on a cross, otherwise we're not good Christians. That's not the point. But the point is that we should be willing to do what God calls us to do. Just as we learned last week, Jesus was willing to do what he was supposed to do, the task given to him by God the Father. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is making here. 
Christ did what he was commissioned to do, all the way up to the point of shedding his own blood. Therefore, when we consider, verse 3, when we consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, but be willing to. If Christ could go through this, you, by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, right? The Holy Spirit who has given you all things for life and godliness, according to 2 Peter 1. You can do this through the power of the Spirit. Whatever God's called us to do, we can do those things through the Spirit. Okay? That's the moral example part here that is true about Christ's death. We never want the moral example to overshadow the true purpose of it as an atoning sacrifice. But everything Jesus did is an example for us, an example of holiness, an example of following God perfectly in every respect, yet without sin. Okay? So that's the point the author of Hebrews is making here. But the reason he's bringing this up is because he wants to talk about the discipline of God. Because remember, at this point, he is trying to apply all of this teaching about Christ to Christians. And as he's applying all of this teaching about Christ to Christians, he wants to help his readers understand how to deal with God's discipline or with suffering in their lives. Because his readers are undergoing quite a bit of suffering. I mean, here we're told they haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, meaning they're undergoing a great deal of persecution, but none of them have been martyred yet. Right? So he's saying, here's what you need to think about with this, all this business about suffering. Here's what he says, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes from Proverbs here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not Sons. So notice what he's saying here. As he's trying to address this issue of suffering, this issue of, well, you guys are going to undergo all of these hard things. You're undergoing them now. You may have to be worried about being martyred later. What should you think about this? How should you think about suffering in your life in light of all this teaching? And this is so important. It's important because when we go through whatever suffering that we go through in our lives, I don't know what that might be, right? family suffering, personal suffering, like physical suffering, whatever it might be. Right? You know the kinds of things you're going through, things you have gone through, things you might go through. When you're going through suffering, this kind of stuff that the author of Hebrews is talking about is really hard to remember. It's easy for a Sunday school teacher to stand up here and say, here's what you should do when you're suffering. Remember, this is God's discipline. Remember, this is God at work. It's easy to say that. It's easy for a preacher to say that from the pulpit. It's a lot harder when you're actually going through the suffering and you feel like God has completely abandoned you. 
and you feel like he's not there. His word feels dry. The last thing on earth you want to do is pray. When you're going through that, that's a lot harder to remember the kind of thing the author of Hebrews is talking about right now. And I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have been there once or many times in life. I certainly have. When you're undergoing that kind of suffering, whatever the, 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 the cause of it is. But here's what the author of Hebrews wants all of us to understand. When we are in that position of suffering, he says this suffering that we undergo is the discipline of God. Now, we need to stop for a second, okay? Because that word discipline can be misunderstood. When we think about the word discipline in our English language right now, the word discipline has kind of a negative connotation a lot of the time, right? We talk about disciplining our kids. Well, when we say we're going to discipline our kids, we're talking about punishing them in some way because they did something bad. And that's certainly a way that discipline can function in Scripture, you know, somebody does something bad, they get disciplined. It's negative discipline. But really, probably the majority of the time, this word discipline shows up in the Greek text here, as well as especially in the Old Testament. The word discipline is not so much negative as much as it's positive in the form of instruction. That's really the way you want to think about discipline here. It's instruction. It is meant to build up. It is meant to teach is meant to form and to shape someone, like a potter with clay. Shaping a young child up in the way he should go, that's discipline, particularly in the book of Proverbs. And this is precisely why the author of Hebrews here quotes from the book of Proverbs. And he quotes, My son, do not regard lightly the what? The discipline of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, the molding of the Lord. And do not be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. So when we're talking about discipline here and suffering, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that when we are undergoing whatever suffering God may bring to us, God is not bringing that suffering because he has abandoned us. You can imagine the readers of Hebrews here might be feeling that way. They're feeling like God's abandoned them in whatever they're going through. The author of Hebrews says, no, God has not abandoned you. When you experience suffering in your life, you're going to be tempted to think that God has left, that he has gone away, that he's not concerned with you. But no, according to the author of Hebrews, according to the book of Proverbs, according to the whole counsel of God, when suffering comes, that is God's discipline either positively to build you up, or sometimes it could be negative. But in either case, it's God's work. God is the one at work here to shape you, to mold you, to make you what he wants you to be. That's the purpose of suffering. That's the purpose of suffering. And the author of Hebrews here draws a kind of analogy with our heavenly father and an earthly father, right? Because he says, verse nine, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And so you can see that in verses 11 and following, we have our author moving now to describe the purpose of discipline. He's told us what discipline is. Discipline is when we experience suffering in life, but God is the one bringing it, and he's doing it for our good. But now he's telling us why God's doing it. Not just generally for our good, but what specifically is good about the suffering that God's bringing us. Here's what's good about it. Number one, it reveals that God is our Father. Suffering reveals that God is our Father. Discipline reveals that God is our Father. Because when we undergo this kind of suffering, this kind of discipline where we feel abandoned, our author says, no, you're not abandoned. This is God at work to mold you. He is your Father. He loves you. He cares about you. This is important to Him. You are important to Him. He's not abandoning you. This is His work. He is molding and shaping, instructing, disciplining you. So it reveals God is our Father. And this is precisely why he quotes from Proverbs. Because in the book of Proverbs, you have Solomon the king teaching his sons how to be a righteous man. Teaching them how to be godly people. And throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon is always saying, My son, listen to these words. My son, listen to these words. And as Solomon speaks to his sons about how they should live, so now the author of Hebrews applies this text as God speaking to his church. God speaking to his church. We are the sons of God. And God speaks to us and disciplines us as a father to a son. And that's the first thing about discipline. Secondly, verse 9, the author of Hebrews tells us what our response to God's discipline should be. Because you know what our normal response to God's discipline is, is to question him. When we go through whatever difficult things that God has orchestrated in our lives through his providence, our first temptation after thinking God has abandoned us is to maybe think that God doesn't like us. Or it's maybe to rebel against him and to say, God, I don't like what you're doing. This is wrong. But our author says, no, verse 9, that's not our response. In verse 9, he says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more, what? Be subject to the Father of spirits and live. The proper attitude the discipline of God in our lives is submission. Submission to His will. Say, Lord, I don't know why you are bringing this kind of suffering on me. I don't know what your purposes are. But I will submit to what you're doing because I know that your word says this is discipline for me. This is instruction for me. This is molding for me. You see, that's what he's saying here. So that's the second thing about discipline, is that our response to it needs to be submission. Submission as we would to our earthly fathers when we were children. 
But then the third thing that he says about discipline here is in verses 10 and 11. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See that? Now there's that analogy between earthly fathers and sons coming up again. Why does an earthly father discipline his son? Why does he instruct him? Why does he give him punishment at times? Why does he do all these things? To create a child who behaves, for one thing, right? That's the pragmatic reason. But also because he loves him. A loving father wants his son to be a godly son. That's what God wants for us too. And so he sends discipline, positive or negative, to build us up in holiness. You see that? The word holiness there in verse 10. That we may share his holiness. The purpose of God's discipline is to make us holy Christians. Now, yes, we'll never be perfectly holy in this life, right? But what's being described here is the doctrine of sanctification, being progressively made more and more like Christ, so that as we become more and more like Christ, we become these little images of Christ all over the world, shining brilliantly, testifying to the work of the Spirit in us, and therefore to the glory of God who is in heaven. That's not a small thing. That's really important. That's going to come up in the sermon that I'm going to give tonight in the evening service. And talk about this holiness concept. Because sometimes as Protestants, we, we have an allergic reaction to the idea of being holy. Because we know we can't. And we know we need to trust Christ for, for salvation through Him, which is absolutely correct. But in light of the gospel, the Bible calls us to pursue lives of holiness to God. To pursue piety. That's an important Injunction in Scripture. And we see it right here. The purpose of God's discipline is to sanctify us, to make us more holy, to make us more conformed to the image of Christ. And so, as the, our author continues here, he continues by giving us more exhortations. He's giving us more ways that we can apply this. As people who recognize the discipline of God And that that produces holiness in us. He says, verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, translation, when difficult things come, when suffering comes, when we think God has abandoned us, nope, he's not abandoned us. Remember that. He has not abandoned us. The suffering is God's discipline. And discipline produces endurance when we recognize that it's God's work and that He has empowered us with the Spirit. And the Spirit is all that we need to respond well to God's discipline and to move forward in our sanctification. And so therefore, because of all of that, we can lift up our drooping hands and we can get to work, be about the business of God. That's what he's saying here. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, 
that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Again, the, all of these injunctions coming to us from the author of Hebrews, these are injunctions given to believers. This is third use of the law going on here. Remember the three uses of the law? I won't rehearse them here, but the third use of the law is for believers. And it's the use that tells us that the law is a rule for our life to show us how to live for God in light of the fact that we have already been saved by the work of Christ. And so we pursue holiness. We, see, we try to root out that root of bitterness here. And you can see in verse 15, root of bitterness, at least in my ESV, has quotes on it. The reason for that is because that phrase is coming from Deuteronomy 29. As Moses warns the people of Israel who are going into the land of Canaan to take that land, right? Before Joshua, before Jericho, they're still out in the desert. They're going to go take the land. Moses says, hey, watch out, Israel, because there's a root of bitterness among you. In other words, the seeds of unbelief. And we need to be on guard about those things, the author of Hebrews says, as he speaks to people who live by faith. And so all of this to say, as we try to just bring all this to a close, when we think about the discipline of God, when we think about the suffering that's going on in life, that is the work of God. Not because he delights to hurt us. He certainly doesn't do that. Not because he is directly the cause of all evil or something like that but because he, in his providence, is orchestrating all things for our good because we have been saved by Christ. We are his people. We are his elect. And he wants to sanctify us so that we can be conformed to the image of his son. It's important stuff. But we can only do all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit in us through God's calling. Make sense? All right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, this, your text this morning. And Lord, we, uh, we rejoice this morning in your gospel. We rejoice that you have accomplished everything we need for our salvation. We are declared righteous on the basis of the work of the Son of God, not on our works. And Lord, in joyful response... In joyful production of fruit, your text today calls us to live holy lives. We recognize, Lord, that your suffering and discipline is for that purpose, to build us up in the image of Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning through the power of your spirit. And you draw us to your word so we can better learn how to do those things. And prepare us now to hear the preaching of your word this morning and to praise your name in worship. And so we pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.